Okay, welcome everyone. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you for everyone's going to be listening to it afterwards. Uh, thank you, Rabbi Foreman, for joining us. It's an honor to have you with us at the Chabura um, for this members class. Uh, before I give a, a very brief introduction with, with some context of today's shiur, I'll just read a, a brief bio of our guest speaker today. Uh, Rabbi David Foreman is an internationally renowned lecturer on biblical themes and the founder and principal educator at Aleph Beta. Uh, he has served as an adjunct professor at John Hopkins University and as a lead writer and editor for Art Scrolls Talmud Translation Project. Rabbi Foreman has also served as scholar for the Hofberger Foundation for Torah Study. His most recent publication is Genesis, a Parsha Companion, the first of a five-volume set on the weekly Torah portion. I'm sure many of our listeners will have come across Aleph Beta and are maybe familiar with the style of approaching Tanakh. And for those who haven't, I, I strongly recommend you check it out because it has excellent content, always asking brilliant and challenging questions and providing convincing answers and, and insight. Um, and the, the animated videos does not mean it's as far from simplistic. Its ideas are always deep, compelling and, and thought provoking. And there was lots of demand to, to invite you to speak at the Khabura. And, and we were really delighted that you accepted because um, I think your, your approach resonates with um, some of the, the, the classical Sephardic way of approaching Mikra. First of all, taking all of Tanakh seriously and focusing on it rigorously. Uh, and secondly, the emphasis on, on Peshat, on prioritizing and emphasizing the Peshat, the text itself, the words on the page or on the scroll, rather than sometimes people get lost in the, the commentaries, trying to reconcile all opinions uh, and getting sometimes confused by the Derashot and Midrashim and the layers that are often taken out of context uh, and therefore not understood properly. Um, so we're very excited to be going into, I think, Shalomor and Mishleh. Um, and uh, anyway, that's enough from me. Um, I'm, I'm sure you'll tell us more about your approach and, and we'll dive into, um, into the examples. So thank you very much. I'm just going to pin you. And I think we'll take questions at the end. Sure, I can also... We can have some discussion in, in um, as I talk to, and if you want to uh, jump in, just uh, you can either raise your hand uh, using the Zoom things, or you can just talk and um, and and re react that way. Uh, I could try to monitor the chat, but it's difficult to talk and read at the same time. So if you do use the chat, <clears throat> just understand that I may not be able to see what you're talking about. It's, it's hit and miss. So thank you so much for having me. Uh, I see some folks uh, that I've gotten to know, um, some vicariously through email and some uh, in, in other ways. So it's great to to have you aboard and nice to meet all all of you. And it's a uh, I've heard wonderful things about um, your group, and it's a privilege to be able to talk with you and learn some Torah with you. Um, I'm sharing with you today something which I'm going to start talking about today, and it'll be a, a two-parter. We'll continue next week. I'll, I'll be with you for two parts. Um, it's something which I'm working on lately that deals with a very challenging subject, which is understanding the rule of King Solomon. Um, the, Solomon is a really challenging figure because, you know, speaking to Avi's point, uh, you know, about sort of the Spartac tradition of taking uh, – Tanakh seriously, Solomon's a great example of, of where 
you know, there's almost two completely different ways of seeing him, right? On the one hand, you know, you grow up in yeshiva and in popular culture, and, you know, you learn his svarim, and you learn Kohelet, and you learn uh, Mishle, and you learn uh, Shira Shirim. And, I mean, who's written more books of Tanakh than King Solomon has? And, uh, you know, and he's heralded as the wisest of all men, and he builds the base of Migdash. And... um, And it, and his rule is the apex, right? It's, you know, when were things better than, um, you know, Ishtachat Gafno, when every person's under his vine and fig tree in the times of peace that Solomon has. He's the only king to really successfully project an empire. Um, and, uh, he builds the base of Migdash. I mean, what, what more could you want? And yet at the end of his reign, God comes to him and says, it's all going to fall apart. Um, and, uh, and it's going to fall apart because of you. Um, you know, um, and it's, uh, it's, it, and seen from that way, it's, it's such a tragic story. It's so difficult to understand. And kind of in light of that, I want to take you to one particular episode, which I want to discuss with you. It's really the most, probably the most famous story that we have in Tanakh regarding King Solomon. It's the famous story of the king and two babies with the sword, right, where the expression split the baby comes from, right, and at this this ratification of Shlomo's great wisdom, and just seen in the light of this reign, I know if you think about the significance of what God says to King Solomon at the end of his life, that that his kingdom is going to split because of his actions, um, and, you know, that split is devastating, it, you know, it's, it would be the equivalent of, of had the Civil War succeeded, in the United States, it would have fundamentally altered, you know, American history and world history. And that split did fundamentally alter Jewish history almost more than any other geopolitical event did, including, you know, it's just, it's staggering to believe what happened there. You know, what would have happened if the kingdom didn't split, if those, if it had remained a United Kingdom, how different would it have been? And so, Seen against that backdrop, the story, the early stories of Solomon attain a certain kind of poignancy that they don't other have. For example, what I want to look with you today is at two stories from Malachim Aleph Perak Gimel. And these are the stories when Solomon is newly crowned. He's a young king. And you basically have two stories, one right after another. And in the first story, um, God comes to him in this dream and says, you can have anything you want. Um, ask for anything. And uh, and first of all, that's like a strange thing, right? When did God ever come to you in a dream and ask you that? Forget you. When did God ever come to anybody else in a dream and, and, and say to that? It's like not God's usual way of doing things. Um, ask for whatever you want and I'll give it to you. But that's what God says to Solomon. Such a strange, such a strange thing. Give me just one moment to just tell my kid that, I'm here and that he should take lunch for himself. I'll be right back with you. Hey, Abihai. Hey. I'm teaching in a bit, so just grab yourself some lunch and I'll be with you in, in, in a little bit, okay? Okay. Okay. Um, and so he has this dream, right? And, and seemingly he, he asks, you know, the dream goes well. He doesn't ask for for fame, he doesn't ask for power, he asks for wisdom. 
And God says, I'm so proud of you. You asked for wisdom. What a good thing. That's really wonderful that you asked for wisdom. And I'm going to give it to you, right? You're going to be the wisest of all men. And somehow the wisest of all men can't keep his kingdom together. It's, and, and you almost think like, okay, so God, you know, Solomon told you that he wanted wisdom because he wanted to reign as a good king. He wanted the wisdom to be able to rule properly. He says that, I want you to give me wisdom to be able to judge my people properly. It's so important for me to do that. And it's like, and some, so it almost feels like on the one hand, right, it's almost a personal question. It's not just a question about Solomon. I'll tell you why, right? Because, you know, when you think about God, right, you say, what's God's responsibilities you know, in my life, right? Do I, you know, I have problems in my life. Could I imagine that God might provide me some wisdom or guidance to deal with those problems, right? So you might say to yourself, no, God's not in the wisdom providing business. You know, you can't look to God for that. You want wisdom, you want guidance, read the seven habits of highly successful people, uh, of highly effective people. Go to Columbia and get an MBA in business management. Um, you know, do other things to to get your wisdom and your, you know, enroll and become a psychologist. That's not God. God is in the religion business. You know, he's, he'd do my mitzvahs and keep my mitzvahs and then things will be good. That's like one way of seeing it. But here comes God and says, here comes Solomon and says, I need some guidance. I really need to be a good king, and I want your help to be a good king. And God says, sure, I'm in. And, and you know, ask for what you want, wisdom, and I'll give you wisdom. And here it's like his kingdom falls apart a generation later. And I thought he was wise, so where did the wisdom, like did he have the wisdom? Did he lose the wisdom? Did God, and why didn't God give it to him? Did, did God give him wisdom but not the right kind of wisdom? Like he didn't give him the wisdom to keep his kingdom together. So how do you understand how do you understand this story of the dream in light of the eventual um, collapse of the kingdom, specifically with regard to like God knows something that Solomon doesn't know, right? What the dangers that lurk a generation later, and how do you understand those dangers impinging upon this story, or do they impinge on this story? So that's sort of like an overall question that I want to consider with you um, as we as we read the story. Um, so jump in with me if you if you would, um, and let's take a look at some of this text. And what I'd like to do with you is kind of read through. Um, read through some of this text and see what we notice as we do it. Um, just again, by way of orientation, in Malachim Gimel, Malachim Aleferet Gimel, there are two stories that are juxtaposed. The first story is the dream in which Solomon asked for wisdom. And the next story appears to be the ratification of that wisdom, the proof of that wisdom. Because the next story is Az Tavona then, right after this, Right, two women came before the king with their with their court case, and Solomon decided the court case with their two babies. Right, so and 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 Solomon judges this, and everyone sees how wise he is. Right, so if I would ask you, what's the function of that second story? What's it doing there? So you would say, well, the function of that second story is 
it, it proves that, you know, Solomon had this wisdom. He had this great divine wisdom. Look what he was able to do. He was able to solve this terrible, this, this very difficult court case. <clears throat> but I want to suggest that maybe that story, that second story, is not doing what we think it is. And here's why. For two reasons. Let me ask you two questions about this, this story. Question one is, how big of a deal do you think judging that case really was? Like, let me ask you a question. Imagine that story of the king and two babies wasn't in the Torah, right? Imagine it wasn't in Tanakh. Imagine it was on your Facebook feed, right? You're, you're sitting, you're scrolling through Facebook, and you notice that there's this circuit judge in Ohio somewhere, and there are these two women who come before him, and they both, you know, he doesn't know what to do. Whose baby is it? And so he tells the bailiff, bring me my AK-47 rifle. You know, I'm going to shoot the baby and give half the carcass to one woman and half to the other. And the horrified mother says, please don't do that. Give it to the other lady. And the other woman is like, yes, shoot the baby. And the, the judge says, aha, I know who the right mother is and points to the right mother. And you read that story. So let's talk about your reaction to that story. Two possible reactions. One reaction is a wry smile crosses your lips. And you say, oh, that's clever, right? And you forward it to one of your friends. And then you move on and you read the next story in your Facebook, right? That's one possibility. And the other possibility is you stop and you drop your phone and you say, holy mackerel, I have never heard of anything as brilliant as that. This is the wisest jurist who's ever lived. He should be on the Supreme Court. I don't care what his politics are. I don't care if he's a Republican. I don't care if he's a Democrat. I don't even care if he went to law school. This is the wisest person who's ever lived, right? It would probably be A, right? It, it, you wouldn't have said that. You would say it's clever, right? But it's not the greatest proof of wisdom of the, of the, of the smartest person who's ever lived. So why is this being heralded as the great proof of King Solomon? It's clever, Right, but is this this shows that he's really got it? He's he's literally ain navon v'chacham kamocha. There's no one as smart as you in the language of God. Is what it's going to be. You have this incredible understanding. So that's question number one. Here's question number two about the story. <clears throat> Shlomo asked for wisdom, and. God specifically says, you could have asked for a whole bunch of other things. I'm really proud of you. You didn't ask for fame. You didn't ask for fortune. You didn't ask for military success in war. You asked for wisdom. And that's really great. And God gives it to him. Think about it for a minute. And let me ask you what seems like a heretical question. And that is, is wisdom really something that God can give you at all? Like, does that even work? Could God actually give you wisdom? And let's actually define what we mean by wisdom, and it's worth thinking about this theologically a little bit. On one level, you would say, Foreman, I don't understand. God's omnipotent. He can do whatever he wants, right? Of course, he can give me wisdom. He can give me anything. Yeah, but the question is, what do we mean when we say God's omnipotent? What do we mean when we say God can do anything? Do we really mean God can do anything, or do we mean God can do all possible things, right? Let me explain what I mean by that. Right? This is C.S. Lewis, the Christian theologian, 
talks about this a lot, but it's a, whether you're a Christian or Jewish or anything else, you have to struggle with this question of what God's omnipotence, omnipotence really means. So for example, let's say, you know, the, the famous question everyone always asks you, can God uh, make a rock that he can't lift? Right? So what's the answer to can God make a rock he can't lift? Right? That, that paradox. The answer would seemingly be no, but that's not, that doesn't mean that God's not all powerful, right? It's, that's, it's a contradiction in terms. God can't make a contradiction in terms go away. That's not a limit on God's power. Can God make a square circle? No, but that doesn't mean God can't do anything. It's just you came up with this idea called a circle and you say it's different than a square. So, you know, that's not God's fault. That's because this is a circle and this is a square. I, you know, if you say this is this and this is this, I can't make that go away, right? So, if, so for example, if God says, you know, um, could God make you rich? Well, sure, God can make you rich. He could just give you a whole bunch of gold. Could God uh, make you famous? Sure, he can make you famous. Could God give you military success in war? Sure, he can give you military success in war. There's no limit on those kinds of things for God to be able to do. But the question is, how would you define wisdom? Right, let me ask you this question. Give me a good back of the napkin definition of wisdom. And by wisdom, I don't mean IQ, right? I don't mean intelligence. I mean wisdom. What would you say wisdom is? Right? Somebody comes to you, what is, what is wisdom? Knowledge. So is it knowledge? Right? Let's say you had a, you were struggling with what to do in life. You really needed counsel and you decided you and your wife or you and your and ask them because they have wisdom. Would you go to the person with the most knowledge necessarily? Right? Would I go to a scientist who's a, a great, you know, who knows a lot about biochemistry? Not that they might know a lot. They might, uh, they might even have memorized Wikipedia. Doesn't mean that they have wisdom. Wisdom isn't the same as knowledge, right? What would you say wisdom is that's different than knowledge? Knowledge has experience. Yeah, it has a lot to do with life experience, doesn't it? Now, not everybody who has life experience is wise. So let's sharpen that a little bit. What, how wisdom has to do with life experience, but it's not just life experience. How does life experience play into wisdom? If you use good, ju- good judgment, you derive use from good it. judgment. So in other words, if I if I have good midot, right? If I bring my integrity to bear and my honesty and my sensitivity as a human being and my intelligence, right, all to bear upon my life experience, right? I, I can mine that life experience for wisdom, right? But if I don't have a lot of life experience, I just don't have the chomer. I don't have what it takes. I can't make wisdom out of nothing. So here's Solomon. He's this very young king, this boy king. And he comes to God. He says, I'm very young. I don't know the difference between anything. I need wisdom. Right. And God says, sure, I'll give you wisdom. Like, does it really work that way? Can God sort of make and give you wisdom? How do you have wisdom without the life experience necessary to process that wisdom? You can't just wave a magic wand and give someone life experience, can you? So the question is, I'm asking is maybe a question we're not allowed to ask, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And that is, is can we discern a mechanism, so to speak, for how God might do this, right? Without, you know, how does it turn into the realm of the possible that you could give Solomon this wisdom? 
it's almost like God would have had to give him some some incredibly powerful, hyper-potent life experience that almost, if Solomon could bring his intelligence to bear on it, that that one life experience could be so powerful that it could be something that he could mine for wisdom. But where is that life experience and, and what is it? So with this in mind, let's go back to the text. And let's see if we can find any clues to any of these questions in the text, but let's also notice what's going on and, and uh, as we read it. So I'm going to share a screen with you. If you could give me the permission to share a screen. Looks like I do have permission to share a screen. Um, and let me take you into this screen here. You should be able to now. Yeah, perfect. You can okay, see. you guys can pretty much see that. Should I do Hebrew and English or just Hebrew? Hebrew and English is good? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, whatever you prefer. Okay. All right. So here's Malachim Allah Perakimel. And here's his dream. And let's go to let's go to the dream. Um So Bigivon Nirashem Al Shlama Bakalam Alila verse five. God comes into this dream and says, Sha'alma Etanlah, what can I possibly give you? Right now, what's interesting is after the dream is over, you have some really interesting language. He has this conversation with God in the dream, and look at Pesvav. And I just want to tell you that of, of how I actually came to see this. I'm sitting in shul one day in Woodmere, and it turns out that this parak is actually the haftorah for a particular Parsha in the year, but it's not very often read because usually Hanukkah coincides with Parsha Miketz, and when it does, it preempts this Haftorah. But when Hanukkah doesn't coincide with Parsha Miketz, this is the Haftorah for Parsha Miketz. So I'm listening to this Haftorah, and I'm thinking, what in the world does the story of Solomon and the two babies have to do with Parsha Miketz, right? Like, uh, I don't know what it has to do with Parsha Miketz. What does the story of Yosef have to do with 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 Solomon and the two babies and this sort of dream and this wisdom and stuff. And then I get to this Pasuk and it starts to hit me. Right? And Shlomo wakes up and behold, it was a dream. Now, if you um, if you come along and you ask yourself X woke up and behold, it was a dream. You say to yourself, how often does that appear in Tanakh? That's a very unusual phrase, right? It, actually, that exact same phrase only appears one other time, I think, right? When's the other famous time when somebody wakes up and behold, it's a dream? It's in Paro. Paro. It's Paro. The Paro of Yosef wakes up where he has that dream about the lean cows and the, ugly, the good cows and the bad cows. Right, and he wake and he's terrified by the dream. He wakes up by he cuts paro He wakes up and behold, it's a dream. Now, you might say to yourself, okay, well that's a coincidence. So, like it's got a, every phrase has to appear somewhere else once. So it happens to appear in Malachim Aleph. No, no reason to make a whole simus about that, right? What, I don't, what do I really care about that, right? Okay, you could say that, but it's not just by Keep on reading. Look at the next Pasuk. Um, actually, the same Pasuk. At the end of this same Pasuk that says, right over here, 
right? Read the end of it. So he goes to Jerusalem, and then, Vayas Mishteh He goes, and he makes a Mishteh, right? You see it over here at the end of this verse, Vayas Mishteh and Pharaoh, and sorry, and, and he makes, Solomon, he makes this feast for all of his servants. Well, turns out that somebody else made a feast for all of their servants before Shlomo. Who's the person before Shlomo who made a feast for all of his servants? Paro again. Paro again. That same Pharaoh, just a verse or two away from the dream. Right before the dream, at the very end of the previous Parsha, Vayas exactly the same language. He makes this feast for all of his servants. So you might say, well, all right, maybe that's a coincidence. But now keep on reading. Look at the next verse. So now two women come before the king. And they stand before him. Now notice that verb, that is a feminine verb, feminine right uh feminine conjugation of amod batamodna that particular conjugation of amod batamodna is rather unusual in tanakh right appears actually three times from the beginning of tanakh through malachimalaf once is here right but guess where another batamodna is in pharaoh's dream right remember there are these two sets of cows Right, so one set of cows, Vata'amodna, they're standing next to the other set of cows. So there's these two sets of cows in this dream, and here there's these two women, and they're both Ta'amodna, and Solomon's waking up, and he sees there's a dream, as Vayas Mishtelacholavadav, and you keep on reading, and the woman starts saying, Adoni. And the woman says, Please, my master, me and this other woman, Yoshevet Babayit Achad, we were all in one house, Ba'eladima Babayit, and we all gave, and I gave birth in that house. And she gave birth in the house. I gave birth in the house. But by Hibayama Shlisha's Lidati, it happened. It happened three days after I gave birth that this other woman gave birth also. Okay, now remember this. Three days after birth. Three days after, that's what she says. By Hibayama Shlisha's Lidati. Three days after I give birth. I want to show you something remarkable. Let's go to the story of Paro, Paro's dream. Right? I think it's in chapter 41-ish. Here it is. Right? Here's Right? So you see, right? He wakes up and, right? And, 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 Paro uh, is in here. And where is it? Um, <clears throat> yeah. So what happens? Um, what happens? Let me find it for you. Um, oh, so it's right before this. So look at the chapter right before this. So remember, right before this, when Pharaoh makes that feast, right before that, Joseph had been in prison, right? 
and he gets taken out and in prison. He has the Sarah Mashkin, the Sarah Open, the baker, and the wine steward, right? And then all of a sudden, there's this party. But look when that party happens. When was Vayas Mishelach? Here's Vayas Mishelach Olavadav. Look when it was. Vayhi Bayomashlishri Yom Huledet at Paro. That's pretty remarkable. And it happened on the third day after Pharaoh's birthday. Well, come on. That's not a coincidence. Three days after Pharaoh's birthday, three days after this lady's birthday, just two different meanings of birthday, one the day in which you were born, the other the day in which you gave birth, right? You put all this together, this is not a coincidence. Whoever put the Haftorahs together knew what they were doing, right? When they matched up Parsha Nikets with this story in, um, with this story in, in Malachim Aleph, they knew what they were doing. There's echo after echo of the story. Very mysterious. But now the question is, great. There's this connection between Parsha Miketz and the story in Malachim Aleph. What in the world could that connection possibly mean? Right? What could that possibly mean? So what do you do when, let me unshare with you for a second. All right. So let's say just a little point of methodology here. Let's say you stumbled across this. Right. You you found these connections one day and you're very excited because like you feel like you stumbled upon this secret, this this subterranean connection between these two parshiyot, this wormhole connecting Malachim Alapara Gimel to the Joseph story. But you have no idea what it means. You have no idea what to make of it. How would you possibly begin to interpret this and begin to, to make sense of it? What would you do? Any thoughts? What would you do next? You assume that the later story is hearkening back to the first story, so you have to learn from the earlier to the later <laughs> methodology. See, so, okay, that's an interesting question. So one question is, clearly these stories are shedding light on each other, but which story sheds light on which? Does the Joseph story shed light, shed light on the Solomon story, or does the Solomon story shed light on the Joseph story? So instinctively you would say, well, it must be that there's an earlier story and a later story. So it must be that the author of the Book of Kings is using language from the Joseph story, be- presumably to enlighten whatever's happening in the Book of Kings, right? It's not that the Book of Kings is is teaching something about the Joseph story, it's that Joseph story is teaching you something about the Book of Kings. You might presume that to be true. However, it's I would just caution you that it's not always so simple, and it's not the only things, the only the way things always work. And if you look carefully at our case, you'll see it's not so simple here either. So you say, well, how could that possibly be? One's an earlier story, and one's a later story. The earlier story you didn't know about the later story, right? But it also could be that the author of the Book of Kings is not just interested for some reason in teaching you something from the Book of Kings that draws on the Joseph story. It could be that the author of the Book of Kings wants you to understand something in the Joseph story in order to understand something in the Book of Kings. And therefore, it could be that there is a hidden commentary on the Joseph story lurking in the Book of Kings, too. So you can't be so sure that you're not going to learn something going both ways. But that's one possibility. But still, you're jumping. Right now, my question is, so how do I interpret this? Like, what's my first step? What do I do to kind of start to figure this out? Any other suggestions of what you could do aside from 
trying to figure out which story is shedding light on which. So here's what see you if do. someone. Yeah, go ahead. Well, just see if someone has spotted that previously to you. So one of the Mephorshan perhaps has made that connection and might have you could try that. some insight. Right, so you could open up the Radak on Allah Torah. You could say, does the Radak say anything? You see the Radak doesn't say anything. And then you could look at Rashi, and you can, and Rashi doesn't say anything. And then you look at the Mitsudas, Mitsudas doesn't say anything. And you look at, uh, who else? There's not that many Mephorshim on Malachim. You scour through Bracious uh, Rabba, and they don't say anything. And you, you're stuck. No, Medrashim, it's up to you, little old you. It looks like you're the first person who stumbled upon this. So on the one hand, it's like, oh my gosh, I stumbled upon something amazing. On the other hand, I have no idea what it means, right? What do you do? No Mepharshim have seen it before. Continue reading the story. Okay, so you need more data, right? Possibly. You can say continue reading the story, maybe continue reading the story. The other thing you can do I find it was really help, helpful in situations like this is when you find that the two texts in the Torah are connected in these kinds of ways, what you might say with intertextual connections, that there seems to be this wormhole. There's one section of text over here and there's another section of text over there and they seem to be connected. And it's not just one connection, it's not just two connections, not just three connections, there's a whole mess of connections, right? It's undeniable that somebody was thinking about this earlier story when they wrote this later story, and you want to figure out why, you can play a little game. And the game I like to call is cast of characters, right? Imagine this were a movie and you're a casting director, right? So you're, you're interviewing people for their roles, right? So it's a, a lot of the success of a movie has to do with who you put in the cast. So what you do is you play cast of characters. You say, okay, What's the cast of characters in story A, and what's the cast of characters in story B? And then the real question is, who matches up to who in each story? That's how you play cast of characters, which is, if these two stories are mapping on each other, almost like a transparency, almost like you could take this story and map it right onto that story, so which character is assuming which role? Who's playing who? Right? So in other words, you can do this both ways. Say who from this, right? Who from the Joseph story is playing who in the Solomon story? Or who in the Solomon story is playing who in the Joseph story? So I, I'm just going to say a word to the wise over here, which is this game, cast of characters, when the Torah makes these connections is not for the faint of heart, right? Do not, you, you, you have to be really careful playing this because it's very, very mysterious. The Torah really plays with you almost without exception. Almost without exception, the Torah is doing something mind-bending with cast of characters. Why? Because the people who you think are playing what you think they're playing are not necessarily playing it, right? The Torah is almost always doing something very sly with cast of characters. It could be that one character is actually occupying two different roles in the previous story. Or it could be that one character's role splits in two in another story, right? It, it's, it's very, very uh, psychedelic. So let's play cast of characters for a moment. Let's start with uh, the easiest one, right? Seemingly. Our first connection was Vayikach Paro, Vayikach Shlomo Vinei Chalom, right? Solomon woke up, and in fact, it was a dream. And that matches up to Vayikatz Paro, and Pharaoh woke up after his dream, okay? So 
if Pharaoh wakes up after his dream and Solomon wakes up after his dream, so who is Solomon playing relative to the characters in the Joseph story? Pharaoh. Pharaoh, right? And that kind of makes sense, right? Because what about Shlomo reminds you of Pharaoh aside from the fact of, that he has a dream? They're both kings. They're both great kings. Not only are they both great kings, they're both emperors, right? An emperor is a king over more than one province, right? Shlomo actually establishes a bit of an empire, and, and, so does, and, and so does Egypt at that point. They're both emperors, and they both have this dream. And the dream in both cases is a method of God communicating something, right? God is the one who is, um, who is, who is talking in this dream, right? Okay, so that's kind of remarkable. But it's not so simple that Solomon is playing Paro. Here's why. Let's look at the moment that he, I'm going to share my screen with you one more time. Let me look at, let's look at the moment where Shlomo asks for wisdom and God decides to grant it to him. God says in verse 12, Okay, boys and girls, what language does that remind you of? It turns out there's a fourth connection or fifth connection to the Joseph and Paro story. This language connects to the Joseph and Paro story. A wise and understanding heart that before you, no one has ever had anything to you. What does that remind you of in the Joseph story? Who's that? That's the way That's the way Paro describes Yosef. That's the way Paro describes Yosef. So who's the possessor of the wise and understanding heart? That's Yosef. So now Solomon gets gifted this wise and understanding heart that no one ever has. It's exactly the same language with Yosef, right? What does Paro say? There's no one as wise and understanding as you. So the language for wisdom is literally borrowed right off of Joseph, which means who else is Solomon playing in the Joseph story? Guys, Yosef, right? So he's playing both Paro and Yosef. I told you it's kind of mind-bending, right? So now let's figure out, well, what would that mean then? What would it mean that, let's, let's mind the implications of that. What could it possibly mean, just sort of sit back in your chair and muse on that for a moment, what could it possibly mean that here Paro is at this moment in his kingdom, He's a young king, and all of a sudden, he's playing Paro in one sense and Yosef in the others. In what sense is he Paro, and in what sense is he Yosef? And how do those two go together for Shlomo? Well, in one sense, he is the uh, emperor of Israel, like Paro was the emperor of Egypt. And he's also, you know, he's God-fearing man like, he, like, like Yosef was. So he's kind of the combination of the two. Um, yeah, but let's say, but let's have fealty to the text. The text identifies the way in which he's similar to Yosef as being in his wisdom, right? So, okay. Now, let me ask you. So, you might just say, "Well, 
he's the emperor who has the dream, and he's also the person with wisdom. But a person with wisdom and an emperor with a dream don't necessarily connect. Is there a way that this idea of being Paro and this idea of being Yosef actually connects? What was the greatest expression of Yosef's wisdom? If Yosef was wise, what was the most significant contribution that his wisdom ever made? What was the great thing that convinced Paro that he was wise? He was able to resolve or understand the dream, interpret the dream. He was able to interpret the dream. There is a monarch who has a dream, and then there's someone with the wisdom to interpret it. Could it be that, that Shlomo is also a monarch who has a dream and has great wisdom? What kind of wisdom? The wisdom to interpret it the same wisdom that Yosef had. In other words, what God is saying to Shlomo in essence is, you're going to have a dream, you're going to have a vision, you're going to see something that's going to be sort of astounding, and that is going to be, and you're going to need to interpret that. But you're going to have the wisdom to do it like Yosef did. And if you can interpret it, right, then everything will jump out into experience. So in other words, it's almost like, and then you say, well, I understand that because Paro had a vision that he had to interpret, but does Yosef have a vision he has to interpret? Well, go back to that Vata Modena Lopanov. Remember, what was Paro's vision? It was two sets of cows that were both standing next to each other. Isn't it fascinating that immediately after, and remember, Paro had two dreams, right? And Vayikats after the first one. So Shlomo is Vayikat, and then just like Shlomo, just like Paro had a second vision, something happened with, 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 with Shlomo that he had a vision. What was his vision? Two women came to him. Same words, Vatamodna. Sounds two women stand before Solomon, just like two cow, two sets of cows stood before the king. Your visions are similar. That's what you need to interpret. Solomon, you need to interpret the story of the king and two babies. You know why? Because that experience you're going to have, let's get back to that first question we had. How in the world could God give you wisdom without life experience? And we theorize that maybe the, what God would have to do is give you some sort of life experience, some sort of hyperpotent life experience that you can mine for wisdom that you could always come back to that would tell you everything you would need in order to succeed in life. God says, I'll give it to you in this experience. This experience, the king and two babies, it will contain everything you need to know. It's going to be your missing life experience. It's going to give you wisdom if you can mine it, if you can interpret it, if you can integrate its meaning, if you can do what Yosef did, which is both interpret the dream and execute a plan based upon its interpretation. Now, let's take this logic just a little bit further. If we're right about this, might the parallels between Joseph and Pharaoh be all the, be a little bit more precise than we've yet put our fingers on? Let's talk about the nature of the dream. Paro was really worried about his dream. Like, if you had a dream that you couldn't interpret, would you go to the lengths Paro did? To, like, we all have dreams we can't interpret. We live with it, right? Paro didn't live with it. Paro went to the ends of the earth. He quizzed all his advisors. He couldn't stand the notion that he didn't know what this dream meant. 
he had this premonition that this was a really important dream. It was a communication and it was bad and it kept him up at night. And he was right. It was a dream that actually foretold. In other words, imagine there is no Yosef in your life and you can't interpret it. What's the significance of Paro's dream? Seven years of plenty, but you won't know that those are ever going to come to an end, followed by seven years of devastating famine. If you don't have Yosef in your life, what happens? Everyone's dead. Everyone's dead. It's the end of your empire. It's a dream that foretells doom, but it also gives you a way to deal with it. And Yosef says, I know a way to deal with it. You've got to save. You've got to somehow somehow build these storehouses and somehow and, and be able to get through it, right? But the dream foretells doom. If Paro's dream was a dream in which God was helpfully tipping him off as to something that might happen in the future that could happen in the future that would spell doom to the kingdom, but something that could still be averted, is it possible that in as much as Solomon is a latter-day Pharaoh and a latter-day Joseph with the wisdom to interpret the dream, that the meaning of the vision in front of Solomon with the two women and the baby was the same. It too foretold a moment of possible doom for his kingdom. Just like with Pharaoh, everything would be fine for a while, and you won't even notice that anything's wrong, but it'll all come crashing down to doom soon. And that's what happens. A generation after Solomon, he literally dies and it all comes crashing down. Could it be that God was warning him about that? In other words, getting back to our initial question, God wasn't ignoring the doom that was coming. That was the whole point of the wisdom. In other words, here comes Solomon, right? Solomon says, God says, you know, ask me whatever you want. So God says, so Solomon's like, oh, you know, I'll... um, I'll have wisdom, please. Wisdom would be really great. I really need to judge the people, right? That's going to be my main thing. And if you're God, what do you know that Solomon doesn't know? You know that's not what he needs. You know what he really needs is to figure out a way to keep his kingdom together. It's all very nice to to regale the Queen of Sheba with all of her riddles. Right? It's all very nice to know the secrets of botany. It's all very nice to write Kohelet. But if you can't keep the kingdom together, what use is it? Right? So God's like, okay, you want wisdom because you think your main thing is you have to judge people. But I know something you don't know. Right? So how does God deal with that? So God, you know, even for Solomon, God doesn't put billboards out that says, Here's your future and here's what you need to know. But that doesn't mean God is silent either. God helps them. God says, you know, I'll work with you. Wisdom you want? Okay, we can do wisdom. Wisdom to judge people? Not really, but okay, we can work with that. Um, Okay, how do you get wisdom, Solomon? You need life experience for that. Got to give you some sort of really potent life experience. What am I going to give you? Okay, you think, Solomon, everything is about judging people, right? You think that's your big thing. You've got to judge people and have the wisdom to do it. So 
You think like court cases. So I'll give you a court case. You try to judge your way out of it. You see where that takes you. And the court case is the king and two women. But as you listen to the court case, you're going to realize that you're the Joseph figure. And where you really have to take your wisdom is use your innate intelligence and intuition to try to figure out the meaning of the story. Now the question is, what's the meaning of the story? And how can the story save them? Well, let me show you something chilling. You know, one of the literary techniques that the Torah uses, which is not so much in fashion nowadays, but the Torah uses it all over the place, and you sort of have to deal with it because the Torah sometimes doesn't ask you what kind of literary techniques you would prefer it to use. So, right, but nowadays we tend to dismiss wordplay, but the Torah uses wordplay all the time, right? And it's a way that the, one of the ways that the Torah hits you over the head with meaning. Let me show you some very chilling wordplay in Solomon's dream. When Solomon asks for wisdom, let me take you back into the text. Here. Here's Solomon saying, I really need to judge the people. You know, I am within this nation that you've You've asked for Amrav, this great nation. I should lo yimane. So many people lo yisafer merov. You can't even count how many people. How could I ever possibly judge them? If you're God, you're listening to Solomon say this. What are you thinking? Hey, Solomon, it's not such a big kingdom, right? You know, pretty soon it's just two tribes. It's not 12, right? You know, like this is, this is laden with irony, this Amrav business, right? Okay, but now look at Amrav. Who were the two potential kings that were vying for custody over this nation Israel? What were their names? Yeravam and Rechavam. Isn't it interesting that both Yeravam and Rechavam share an aspect of their name that's similar? What aspect of the name Rechavam and Yeravam is similar? There's a rug in both of them. Rechavam, there is a rug in both of them. That's interesting. And there's also Am. an Am. There's an Am. It's just, is it Ravam or is it Rechavam? Oh, fascinating. Look at what Solomon says. Am Rav. Am Rav. What are the two parts of your Ravam's name? Am and Rav, Yerav, Am. Okay, so this, but remember, Am is shared between Rechav Am and Yerav Am. The, the names share Am. Can you find in this phrase an Am, right, which is shared between Rechav Am and Yerav Am? Here's the Am, literarily. Here's the Rav, the Yerav. Can you see how it might be shared with Rechav? Read the word right before it. Look at the letters going backwards. Take out the suffix. Reish, chet, bet. Rechavam, on the right-hand side, going left to right. Yeravam, going right to left, with an am shared in the middle. Two potential mothers battling over a newly born baby. 
over a newly minted kingdom. A generation from now, Solomon. And so God sees this in his words, and it's like, okay, you know what you need to see? You need to see two people battling over your kingdom. I'm going to show that to you. I'm going to show you two mothers, because at some level, that's what kings are, two mothers battling over this people. And it's almost as if the same way that Solomon, that Pharaoh's dream was a premonition of a disastrous future, the story of the king and two babies is also a premonition of a disastrous future. The same way that for Pharaoh, everything might look fine now, everything seems to be wonderful now, but there will be devastating years to come. So too, Solomon, everything's fine in your lifetime, but there's a threat looming on the horizon. What I want to suggest to you next week, when we come back, is that Solomon truly has to mine this experience in front of him, like Yosef, for all the wisdom it could possibly give him. Because the wisdom he's supposed to get from him is not just that there's a threat in the future. In Yosef's case, it also wasn't enough for him to realize that there was a threat in the future. He also had to figure out how to deal with the threat. Even for Solomon, it's not enough to realize that there's a threat in the future, that there's a possibility of a divided kingdom. He also has to figure out what to do about it. But how does he know what to do about it? The answer I want to suggest to you is that, too, is in the experience. God gives him an experience that not only teaches him about the threat, but also teaches him about what to do about it. Right? But to see that, we have to see one more, we have to figure out one more resonance in the story. It's not just, I want to argue, that the story of the king of two babies resonates with Solomon's future. It also resonates with his past. And that is going to be where he finds the wisdom. Next week, when he comes back, we will see that we haven't yet seen the end of the intertextual parallels between the Solomon story and the Joseph story. There are more. And if we see the more, we'll see how the story resonates not just with the future, but with the past, which is where Solomon's going to find the wisdom to combat the problem, if only he can interpret it. So we'll come back next week and we'll we'll show you that. Okay, the issue, Avi, that you need to talk about for next week is just that it's really part two of this. So I'll leave it to you guys to figure that out. I'll, I, I'm, I'm done, but I'll open this up to questions or comments if, if, uh, if you guys want to, want to chat. Wow. Um, I, I just feel like I finished an edge of the seat thriller <laughs> and you left us on a cliffhanger. Uh, indeed, mind bending. And, uh, I think when the Chabura make a film, we want you as our director. <laughs> um, absolutely. Um, does anyone have uh, any questions? I can see some people have unmuted. Um, some, feel free to go for it. I was, gonna, I was just going to make a comment that as you were going through through the to the shiur, I, I just kept thinking back to yourself because obviously it's, it's it's the main part, and and how you explain in Alpeta about how he how God basically you know his life experience is what allowed him to translate or to to understand the dream. So right yes. at the end when you said that this is about the past, it all it all clicked for me. 
Um, so it, it was kind of like, wow, that, mo- that kind of moment that, that was pretty, really powerful. Yes. Um, and I think, and it, it's, it is amazing, right? For those of you who know my work on Yosef and Para's dream, and you can find that on Aleph Beta, uh, in Parshat Vayeshev, uh, it's a four part series around the part, the Yosef Parshat there. Um, my argument there is that the way that Yosef knew how to interpret his dream was something very similar. There were the same way that there were resonant, these kinds of resonances actually existed in the original Paro's dream. In other words, in Paro's dream, the way Paro is describing the cows matches up to something in Yosef's past, right? Which is what, right? If you, do you remember, Michael, what it matches up to the cows? Who are the cows? I think there were, I don't remember exactly, but it came up to be days or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it comes up to be days. That's what he, That's how he figures out right. that, the, that it's years, right? But the way he figures it out is because the language for the cows, there were Yufot Torah cows and there were Rakot cows, right? Who, who in Yosef's past is described as Yufat Torah and oh, who is mother. described as Rakot? It was his mother, right? His mother. His mother is described as Yufat Torah. But the other cows are Rakot. Who's described as Rakot? Yeah. Yeah. Leah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So he comes to the conclusion that they're Leah cows and they're Rachel cows. And that's what helps him understand the dream. Oh, my gosh. These cows are Leah cows and Rachel cows. My father worked for seven years for Leah. And then he worked for seven years for Rachel. Of course, seven cows, seven cows, two cows. The cows are years. I get it now. That's how he figured out the cows are years. Now, if that's true... If you do the analogy again, if you do the algebra, so one second, if Pharaoh's dream matches up with Solomon's dream, right, the tuva tamodna, the cows that are tamodna here, and the cows that are tamodna there, and the cows in Pharaoh's dream are representative of Rachel cows and, and Leah cows, and there's almost a struggle between them, who will devour who, now there's two women in this vision, so to speak, in this dreamlike fable vision that Solomon has, these two women come before him in this divine experience that he's having. And who do those women match up to? We already see the likelihood that they're Rehavam and Yeravam at some level, struggling over this new baby, which is this child. And if you can't solve the problem, the baby splits, which is exactly what happens, right? The split baby. But now ask yourself, what tribe is Rehavam from? Rehavam is from Yehuda, Solomon's tribe, a child of Leah. What tribe is Yeravam from? He's from Ephraim, the child of Rachel. Two kings, the northern kingdom from Rachel, the southern kingdom from Leah. It's the same struggle. It's the same women. The reason why the kings are women, because at some level, this is the vicarious struggle of the children of one mother and the children of another mother that are struggling now, not just over a baby, but over the whole kingdom, right? And so it's the struggle now, you know, on a grand scale. So I think the, the resonances with Yosef's dream are very, are very dramatic, suggesting, I think, that the reason why Solomon is seeing two mothers when he's really seeing two kings is that the kings are proxies for the mothers. And at some level, maybe the kings 
the other question, which we'll talk about next week, is at some level, is a king a mother, right? Is fundamentally what a king really is, is a mother to the people, right? But at some level, these kings are mothers representative of the two great mothers of our nation, right? And the question is, how do you solve, right? How do you solve that potential conflict? Or is this baby doomed to split? There was a way to solve it, right? And the way to solve it lies in the past. Right. If, if, if the, the lessons about to solve it. So very good, Michael. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. OK. Um, may I ask a question? Um, so thank you very much for a very insightful um, sure. But uh, just two points to pick up. First of all, uh, you, you perhaps alluded to at the beginning of the sure that the, 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 the person who chose this Hafura um, to be aligned to, 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 to this parasha. Yeah. perhaps had seen the connection is that so you said you know you're the first you know you might think you're the first person to see this connection but you've also said actually this connection was 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 already yeah, you're identified correct. you're correct we weren't the first people to have seen it but the, aside from the haftorah i don't know of any other allusion to it other than the fact that this is the haftorah i don't know hmm. anyone who's written on this now i might be wrong and if you can find someone Who's written on it? I will eagerly read what they wrote. I mean, I'm just curious, and I, and I excuse my ignorance, but is, is, is there anywhere where in, the, in, in our sources explain why the Haftoras are aligned to the to the, no, the Sidra, no, or we have no? There's contemporary commentary on it, but it hmm, doesn't. Hmm. But it, it's contemporary. Hmm. And, and, and my and my uh, second question was: Are you suggesting that the incident? of the two mothers and child was in fact a vision or a dream and not a reality or that just doesn't really matter whether it was real or whether it was a vision yeah. it's still it's still life experience i mean you know i wasn't sure whether you were, it was important to say it was part of his dream so i think um so thank you for bringing that up um i believe now that the second is true which is that it doesn't matter whether it's a dream or life experience it's a dream-like life experience it's a, it's a life experience specially crafted by God and handed on a plate to Paro. I think it's possible that it's part of the dream, that the dream hasn't quite ended where we think it ends. The reason why that's possible is because if you remember with, with um, Pharaoh, right, when Pharaoh wakes up by Yikatz Paro, Pharaoh has another dream after that, right? And it doesn't say he went to sleep, right? So it's possible that just as Pharaoh has another dream after Vayikatz, Solomon has another dream after his Vayikatz, and this is the dream, and it's a dream state. It's possible. But I'm not married to that. I still think the simple way of understanding is that it actually happened, but it's an experience crafted by God specifically to him, leading, by the way, to, I think, a very interesting question, which is, you know, what aspects of this are applicable to our lives? Well, we don't get God coming to us in a dream and saying, I'll give you whatever I want, and that we all have a conversation with God where we magically get wisdom. But interestingly enough, we do get life experiences. And one wonders that if God could craft a life experience for Solomon that has the potential to teach him what he needs in order to be able to get where he gets to in life, is it possible that God could craft life experiences for me that could teach me where I need to get to in life? Now, the, the tricky thing about that is that it didn't work for Solomon. Solomon, despite the fact that he was the wisest of all men, does see his kingdom split, right? So even if you're Solomon, it doesn't mean that you're going to successfully mine your life experiences for the wisdom it has to teach you, but it's there, and God gives you those things. 
Now, it's, it's interesting. I said God works with you, right? I wonder if it's the same with us. In other words, you know, what do you know what you – if I said that, if I said and asked you, I said, Michael, you know, let's play, let, let's play God and Michael. If God came to you one day in a dream and said, Michael, ask for anything you want in life and I'll give it to you, right? So what would you do? Like, even if you ask for something good, like, you know, I need wisdom in order to do X and Y to build my business, right? So you don't really know what you need. How are you supposed to know what you need? You know what the next 30 years has in store for you of the what the great crises in your life is of the kind of thing that you're going to need to address. God knows that. You don't know that. So you you take your best guess, right? So we all take our best guess. We all have our hopes. We all daven for things. But when we daven for things, we're davening for the things we think we need. But do are we really right about that? Solomon thinks he needs to know how to be shofet the people. That's what he thinks. History would say that isn't what it about what it's about. So God, but I think God works with that. God's like, okay, we can do that, right? Um, you know, being shofet the people, court cases, Solomon, you know what they're really about? Dispute resolution, right? I mean, that's what it's about. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? Dispute resolution is going to be a really big thing for you. It's just not what you think it is. It's not that you're going to be called upon in a court of law to resolve every individual person's disputes, and that's going to be the legacy of your kingship. There's going to be this huge communal dispute between the two sides of the family, and you're going to have to figure out a way to deal with that dispute, right? So let me teach you about that. Let me give you a court case, and you're going to see that there was an extrajudicial remedy that the king came up with, and in that remedy lies all the wisdom you need, and now maybe you can understand I'm leading you via your experience from the path of what you think you need what you want, into what you need. I'm showing you what you need. And maybe I wonder if all of our experiences do that. I wonder if our specific life experiences we get in life are God's gentle way of leading us from our wants to our needs. You think you want X, Y, and Z, but here's your life experience. And here's where you're going to get out of this life experience. You're going to get what you need out of it. You can get what you need out of it. The question is, will you grab it? Will you grab what you need out of that life experience? That's up to you. You can fail, right? But you have to have the humility to realize that the experiences God's giving you may not quite be the answers to your prayers, but may start with your prayers. God's going to lead you from your prayers to what you actually need, right? So be humble about your life experiences and view them with significance, especially when they resonate with your past, because there may be models in your past and god may be saying to you you know the wisdom you need in life it's right under your nose it's in your past it's been in your family the whole time all you need to do is grab it right and there's something about your life experiences that affirm that but you got to be able to grab it and not be so stuck on what you think you want so i'll leave you with those thoughts we'll talk about more i realize that there's a part of this which we haven't gone to yet which is what those past experiences are for solomon so we'll talk about that next week. Okay? So powerful. I think it's a great, uh, inspiring uh, note to end on. Um, uh, so thank you so, so much. I think we, we, we yeah, we, we're looking forward to, to next week. Um, I don't think anyone needs a, <laughs> that was an unbelievable trailer. Um, so um, hopefully um, we'll see you all. And, and we're going to, um, just one quick announcement before we start, before I forget, um, I'll, 
our new curriculum will please God be, be launched after Shavuot. So, so everyone should get ready to sign up. Very exciting program, um, speakers and, and topics lined up. And um, next week, Wednesday, and hopefully Rabbi, we're going to have you many more times in the future. Uh, thank you. That was amazing. And uh, wishing you all a, a lovely day, a, g- a good evening and, and a good night wherever you are. Avi, before, before you go, can I just make a quick request? Absolutely. Um, which is, uh, could you um, send me a copy of the link, the recorded link to this, just so I have it for my files? We will do that. No problem. Okay. 